Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 138, Into the Abyss, part 2. Picking back up immediately from last week, the July 1932 elections in Germany didn't do anything to address the ongoing crisis induced by the conservatives undermining the Weimar democracy and the Great Depression. The Nazis stood as the single biggest party in terms of vote share, but didn't come close to having an outright majority. But by virtue of being the biggest party, they had the traditional parliamentarian right to try and form a government. Not that they were terribly interested in sharing power, nor was anyone else of significance willing to work with them. On the other side of the political battleground were the conservatives, with President Paul von Hindenburg acting increasingly as an aging figurehead, but still possessing all the power needed to keep the sitting chancellor, Franz von Papen, in power. The Nazis might have had the traditional right to form a government, but these were not traditional times, and Hindenburg was fully prepared to use his powers to appoint chancellors as he pleased. Meaning that the most surefire way for Hitler to gain the chancellorship himself was to cut a deal with the old field marshal. The thing was, though, he didn't really have a way to induce Hindenburg to bring him into the fold. Strictly speaking, Hindenburg could just ignore the Nazis and keep on appointing governments and dissolving the Reichstag when it showed resistance. The Nazis had exhausted their campaigning power and weren't enthusiastic about forcing another election. Hitler could threaten to use the SA to stage a push, but he himself didn't really consider that a viable option, as he feared the army coming down on his followers, with maybe even the SPD and KBD street fighters backing them up as auxiliaries. There was just too much to lose with little prospect of success. In the immediate aftermath of the election, Hitler was recuperating at his breakfast garden retreat. He spent two days going on hikes, watching movies, and listening to music. After his rest, he was confident on how to move forward. He reached out to General Schleicher, and the two met on August 6, 1932, at a location 50 miles north of Berlin. Hitler pressed Schleicher for the chancellorship and most of the major cabinet postings, critically not mentioning the defense ministry, leaving open the possibility that Schleicher would keep that post in the new configuration. I neglected to mention it last week, but after Groner was induced to resign from the defense ministry, Schleicher took the position for himself. Schleicher agreed to push Hitler's case before Hindenburg. The president was disinclined to give Hitler what he wanted by default, and events after the meeting very quickly undercut Hitler's chances. Back on July 29th, just before the election, Papen had issued a decree that anyone guilty of committing an act of political violence that resulted in a murder would themselves be subject to an expedited trial with the death sentence as the desired outcome. The intent was to create another tool to go after communists, but lo and behold, the brown shirts were the ones who immediately got in trouble. On the evening of August 9th in the Silesian town of Potempa in East Germany, a group of brown shirts entered the home of an ethnic Polish family. Two brothers and their mom were inside. They beat the ever-living hell out of the, both brothers, making their mom watch all the while, and then blew the brains out of the older one. Nine brown shirts were arrested a little over a day later on the 11th, and by then the incident was national news. Schleicher arrived at Hindenburg's East Prussian estate on August 10th to discuss the matter of giving the government over to Hitler. The Archjunker was in no mood to hear it. He had no desire to hand control of his Reich over to some Bohemian ex-corporal, and when news of the Potempa incident became front-page news, that decision was reinforced. On August 13th, Papen and Schleicher met with Hitler in Berlin to give him the bad news. 
Papen offered Hitler the vice-chancellorship under him as a consolation prize. When Hitler rebuffed the offer, Papen warned that future elections would surely see support for the Nazis' fall. After all, how could they remain the party of protest forever? And being vice-chancellor would mean Hitler would be able to form an actual relationship with Hindenburg, which would be necessary to be appointed to the highest office later. Hitler still didn't go for it. He tasted power, he wanted power, and he wanted all the power to himself. He and his entourage withdrew to Goebbels' Berlin apartment and deliberated on what to do. The president's chief of staff came around later in the day and advised that Hindenburg still wanted to talk to Hitler, even though the answer to the critical question was still no. At 4.15 p.m. that same afternoon, they met, and Hindenburg himself asked Hitler to join the Papen government. Hitler declined his old idol. He needed the whole thing. Well, Hitler did allow that some of the cabinet spots could be negotiated, but he definitely needed to be chancellor, and the choices to cabinet positions would be left to the Nazis. The president reminded Hitler of their agreement made before the most recent election, that in exchange for forcing new elections that the NSDAP would hold off on attacking the Papen government. Hitler obviously had expected the elections to deliver him much more, and ergo hadn't expected there to be a continuation of the Papen government, and so reneged on that earlier agreement. Hindenburg then took a more direct approach and told Hitler that he could not possibly hand over the entire government to a single party so obviously bent on grabbing power. The president reduced his expectations and simply asked Hitler to conduct his opposition to the Reichstag in a manner befitting a gentleman. <laughs> Fat chance of that. And dismissed the ex-corporal. He returned to Goebbels' place and Hofstangel reported that after a period of sitting quietly, Hitler began entertaining the offer after all. Then, word got out that the press was running a story that Hindenburg had denied a demand from Hitler for complete and total power. The story came from a communication from Papen, and given the speed of it getting out, was absolutely prepared ahead of time by the Chancellor. Hitler now appeared in public to have been dismissed, which enraged him back into refusing to work with the government. Goebbels himself recorded incredulity at the idea of Hitler serving in a bourgeois establishment cabinet, but in the greater movement, there was disquiet. They had been offered a beachhead, and their leader had turned it down. Once again, as in so many other occasions, the question was, what now? Meanwhile, the tensions only grew worse. Five of the Potempa brown shirts were sentenced to death on August 22nd, which enraged the Nazi leadership and threatened to lead the entire essay out onto the streets. Hitler declared that Papen was now an open enemy, that he would direct the full weight of the National Socialist movement against the government. Other leading Nazis publicly defended the condemned, and the nation was aghast that the NSDAP leaders would so brazenly support such obvious outlaws. Fears were renewed that Hitler would abandon his legalistic strategy. The army began drawing up plans to counter an uprising when the SA maintained a permanent presence on the streets all over Berlin. Papen tried to defuse the situation on September 2nd and reduce the death sentences to prison time. Hitler, fearing the SA could be banned again, sent them all home for two weeks to lay low. The newly elected Reichstag convened on August 30th, and as the Nazis had the most seats, Hermann Goering was now speaker of that body. He and the other NSDAP leaders got to work seeing if there was support to get rid of Hindenburg constitutionally. If two-thirds of the Reichstag approved a motion for impeachment, then there would be a national referendum to vote on his removal. This was a far-fetched, grasping-at-straws plan, 
and immediately floundered when ex-Chancellor Bruning ratted them out. Meanwhile, Poppin thought he had good news to deliver, for once. He had secured backing in the business community and with Hindenburg himself to begin inflating the money supply, which would make German industries competitive again. On September 12th, Poppen joined the Reichstag on its first regular session and prepared to lay before them the first piece of business on the docket, getting approval for the new economic measures. Before anything could be done, though, a communist rep named Ernst Torgler stepped forward and called for a vote of no confidence in the Poppen government. This... This was very early into the new Reichstag's term, and nobody was really prepared for the move. Now, normally, you couldn't just stand up and put forward a motion of no confidence all by your lonesome. Or at least, you could, but if you were overriding the order of business, then any single objection could overrule the no confidence motion. Gehring looked around the initially quiet room for any takers, but there were no objections to starting out with a no-confidence vote. Poppen was not totally unprepared for this. Hindenburg and he had already settled on the course of action that if the Reichstag stood in their way, then Poppen would dissolve that body once again, but this time he would also use the power of presidential decree to announce that there would be no new elections. That being said, he hadn't expected to use that power on that very day, and had to have an aide rush back to his office in order to retrieve the actual document signed by Hindenburg. Meanwhile, the hushed atmosphere had descended into heated yelling and recrimination as the Reichstag membership once more turned on itself. As people were shouting, Poppen stood up to finally make his announcement, but was required to be recognized by Speaker Gehring in order to carry out his intended action. Gehring simply ignored the Chancellor waving what was clearly a decree to dissolve the Reichstag by turning to face away from him. Poppen clambered out of the government seating area and stood in front of Gehring. The Speaker simply told him that the no-confidence vote was underway. The Reichstag carried the motion 522-42 to against Poppen. They all really, really hated him. Gehring finally looked at the disillusion order and declared it invalid as the government was deposed. The Chancellor and his cabinet would remain in a caretaker role, but Poppen didn't dare issue the decree to ban elections after that, as opinion was simply too lopsided against him. Yet another round of elections was set for November 6th. It would prove to be a grim one for almost all participants. The people were frankly tired. They had spent the entire year voting in elections of every kind. I mean, you're probably tired of me describing all these elections. Imagine having to live through it, as well as, you know, the whole Great Depression happening and you probably starving. They wanted some kind of resolution to the never-ending crisis, and it seemed like nobody could offer it. The Nazis' unequivocal support for the SA had turned off parts of the middle class, as did their support for a transit strike in Berlin during the fall. That they and the communists both backed the strike alar alarmed the sensitivities of the bourgeois, who had otherwise been all in favor of their policies. Goebbels justified the move by saying the middle class would be easy to win back, but the workers gave out fewer chances for their loyalty. By this time, too, the press was almost uniformly hostile to the Nazis, who could barely get on the radio and had to rely on their own papers. The party's funds had been exhausted, and the SA had to mind itself lest the government issued decrees against them. When the latest election was held, 
the two big stories were the slight reduction of Nazi support from 37% of the vote to 33%, and the uptick in KPD support to 13%. Some nationalists had drifted back to Hugenberg's DNVP, while workers went to the KPD. The outcome was bad for Hitler as it signaled the possibility that his popularity had crested and was now on its way down, weakening his position in trying to intimidate Hindenburg into giving him power. The silver lining for the Nazis was, oddly enough, the KPD's boost in popularity. The communists secured themselves as the third largest party behind the Nazis in SPD, and people in positions of power began fearing a Marxist uprising. There was also the fact that the Reichstag would contain 196 Nazis and 100 communists, both groups intent on dissolving the republic, although their visions to replace it were radically different. This was all cold comfort to the Nazis, who were left weakened and in the exact same position they had been for years up to that point, outside looking in. Now, this all didn't mean that the Poppin government was in any way more stable after the election, far from it. On November 17th, Poppin's cabinet threw in the towel and tendered their resignations en masse, leading Poppin himself to tender his own resignation to the president that same day. They'd remain in place while the wrangling over a new government started back up all over again. Hindenburg summoned Hitler days later on the 19th and again on the 21st. The meetings covered the same old ground, until Hindenburg finally offered Hitler the chancellorship, contingent on him forming a majority coalition in the Reichstag, a novel concept in November 1932, as there hadn't been one of those in over two and a half years. Hindenburg and his clique would bring groups like the Zentrum and the DMVP to the table if they proved unwilling to work directly with the Nazis. Hitler again refused. He wasn't there to play coalition politics. He was there to run a Nazi government. He tried to counteroffer by suggesting he become chancellor, and then they'd issue an enabling act that would dissolve the Reichstag and give him dictatorial powers. Hindenburg frustratedly told Hitler no once again. The entire point of Hindenburg's proposal was to prevent that exact thing from happening. After talking past each other in their discussions, Hitler withdrew empty-handed. Again, the NSDAP rank and file were left deflated. Hitler had been offered the chancellorship. What the hell was he playing at? Yes, there were caveats, but to men who remembered the wilderness years, this was a huge opportunity. Gregor Strasser especially was beside himself at the refusal. Surely the Fuhrer could compromise momentarily and then advance their interests beyond that starting point once in power. Hitler and Goebbels, for their part, started suspecting that the new problem to be dealt with was actually Schleicher. Goebbels especially was suspicious that the general had begun conspiring with Strasser to bring in Nazis to the government independent of Hitler, and he feared that many of the frustrated party bosses would go along with who was then the second most popular man in the NSDAP. One piece of good news that the Nazi leadership did not know about was that while these talks were going on, Hindenburg was presented with a petition signed by a large number of the business leaders of Germany, including Thyssen and Schacht, recommending that Hitler be given leadership of the government. It was kind of an about-face on their part. Sure, they had thrown some token funding the Nazis' way, but aside from Thyssen and Schacht, they had given Hitler the cold shoulder. They appreciated his anti-communist line, but were uncertain if the National Socialist Economic Program was to their advantage. The recent election changed their thinking, though. 
The gains on the part of the KPD and the increasing visibility of the communists on the streets alarmed them, and they wanted the government gridlock to be resolved so that the Marxists could be dealt with. The petition didn't sway Hindenburg at that exact moment, but did confirm for him that Hitler had become acceptable to the rich and powerful of the nation. The next two weeks descended into backroom dealing and conspiracies. All the while, there were constant news reports of fresh political violence on the streets. It appeared as if the entire nation was cracking up, and fears of a civil war grew. The proceedings became international news, and national capitals around the world followed rumors coming out of Berlin anxiously. Delighting in the chaos was the Soviet government, who directed their agents among the German establishment to maximize the discordance. The communist line was that a short-term Nazi victory was actually preferred. The idea was that the inexperienced and unstable Nazis would be ill-equipped to govern with a hostile Reichstag and under the watchful eye of Hindenburg, which, to be fair, is exactly what Hitler feared as well. The communists figured that the Nazis would bomb out a government quickly through gross incompetence and discredit themselves. And the Nazis being discredited wouldn't suddenly rehabilitate the establishment either. People would turn to the other radical party that was untainted by recent failures, the KPD. It was all wishful thinking, and obviously that's not how things played out, but if you're wondering why the KPD's response was largely muted, they were mostly hanging back and banking on the Nazis destroying themselves. Which, to be fair again, that seemed like a perfectly valid outcome at the time. The Nazis really were unpopular with enough of the nation that had they formed a government normally, it all probably would have blown up in Hitler's face. As the nation appeared bent on entering a nervous breakdown, Poppin scuttled back to Hindenburg about what to do on December 1st. They were joined by Schleicher, who decided that was the time to make his power move. Schleicher said before both of them that if he himself was appointed chancellor, then he would approach individual Nazi leaders, most notably Gregor Strasser, and bring them into government without Hitler. They would split the Nazi movement and co-opt what they could. Poppin was taken aback at the sudden backstab, especially since Schleicher had spent the past two weeks denying that he was interested in the chancellorship, and warned Schleicher that it was unlikely he could break off any of the sub-bosses from Hitler. Hindenburg initially sided with Poppin as he had grown to like working with a fellow aristocrat and wanted him to form a new government, but that only enraged Schleicher. In the caretaker cabinet meeting the next day, Poppin told the gathered ministers that the president had asked him to stay on. The announcement was met by stony silence until the foreign minister, Konstantin von Neurath, carefully advised Poppin that him forming another government was a bad idea. The finance minister chimed in that each member of the cabinet shared the same opinion and they would advise the president as such. Hindenburg may have grown fond of Poppin, but the ministers that worked under him had grown painfully familiar with the chancellor's lack of ability to lead or command loyalty. Poppin grew angry and asked if anybody could offer him their support. The Minister of Transportation offered the neutral comment that replacing Poppin with Schleicher would not change the situation, which was very obviously not the affirmation Poppin was looking for. Schleicher, still being the defense minister and present at the meeting, changed the topic to another piece of business he wanted to present. And no, he wasn't changing the subject out of the goodness of his heart, he was going to stick another knife into Poppin. He had an officer loyal to him, Lieutenant Colonel Eugen Ott, present a report of some war games the Reichswehr had run. The scenario had been a hypothetical where the Nazis and communists had a joint uprising, 
which was then followed by a foreign attack. In that case, it was believed the army could not maintain order in such circumstances. Ott conjured images of proletarian strikes, Rhineland separatists, and Polish troops marching on Berlin. It was all ludicrous, yes, but these were scared men, and the report only made them more so. It also cast doubt on Papen's assurances to the cabinet that the army could control any projected uprising scenario. Papen was miffed Schleichert undermined him so egregiously, and left the meeting to immediately see Hindenburg and force the general out as defense minister. He described the conversation over the war games before the president stood up solemnly from his desk. Hindenburg told him that he was too old and tired to go through a civil war, and said that it was time for Schleicher to try his luck. The old marshal genuinely liked Poppin and gave him the news with tears in his eyes. He gave Poppin a parting gift, a signed picture of himself with the words, Once I had a comrade. Pompous gift, pleasant sentiment, Poppin was out all the same. Hindenburg had turned on him in less than a day's time, and now Schleicher would be chancellor. The general was right behind Poppin on the way to the president's office and met soon after Poppin had left. Hindenburg offered him the chancellorship, and Schleicher made a show of refusing it. He told Hindenburg, Airfield Marshal, I am the last horse in your stable and ought to be kept in reserve. The field marshal brushed aside the little show and commanded him to take the position, agreeing to Schleicher's condition that he could dissolve the Reichstag at any time. Still, he would at least make a show of trying to gather parliamentary support. Most of the non-Nazi SPD, KPD parties were at least open to working with him, at least for the sake of a fresh start. Schleicher still wanted to somehow bring the Nazis in for the sake of at least neutralizing the Reichstag, and while Strasser was deep in negotiations with him, Hitler was still the prize. The new chancellor deployed Ott as his emissary on December 1st to the actual town of Weimar, where Hitler was campaigning in the Thuringian local elections. Ott tried his hand at bringing in Hitler, but was subjected to a three-hour haranguing for his trouble. Hitler, though, was facing disaster. On December 4th, the results of those local elections came in, and the Nazis had lost 40% of their support from just a month previous. It looked to the entire nation that the Nazi star was beginning to fall, and even within the NSDAP, that was the shared sentiment. Strasser again pressed hard to cut a deal to at least secure the vice-chancellorship and some cabinet postings, but Hitler was obstinate. It would be all or nothing. The relationship between Hitler and Strasser had always been a roller coaster, with Strasser having played at sharing leadership in the NSDAP back in the later 20s, then submitting to Hitler, then again questioning the Fuhrer's leadership in early 1930 before backing down again and breaking with his brother Otto. For a while, there were no further issues, but the strain of 1932's politicking had broken them apart again. Strasser, at every step, urged Hitler to join a government, to accept the vice-chancellorship as a springboard. Now the electoral wins indicated they might not have another chance at making such a deal, and Strasser worked to ensure the overall party's efforts, his efforts, had not been in vain. Remember, the massive electoral mobilizations were much more the doing of Strasser's organizing work than Hitler and his closest subordinates. On December 3rd, Strasser secretly met with Schleicher once again, and the Chancellor offered him the vice-chancellorship that Hitler had refused, as well as the leadership of the state of Prussia. Strasser didn't accept, but he didn't say no either. The news of the meeting was leaked to Hofstangel by an English contact of his, who had themselves been tipped off by a government official still loyal to Poppen. 
and this information was duly passed on to Hitler. The Fuhrer took the news calmly, but confronted Strasser during a party leadership meeting on the 5th. Strasser begged Hitler to take Schleicher's offer, while Goering and Goebbels pressed to keep the hard line. Hitler chose the hard line, and he and Strasser got into a shouting match. Strasser called on Hitler again at the Fuhrer's Kaiserhof Hotel quarters on the 7th, and this time Hitler outright accused Strasser of treason. This was all too much for Gregor, and he left the hotel in a rage. His options were to submit again, go into rebellion, or quit. He chose to quit. This has left some confused as to why he didn't even try and fight Hitler within the party, but his calculus was likely that he was unlikely to marshal enough of the party's leadership to his side in order to actually beat Hitler. He certainly wouldn't be able to sway any of the brown shirts as they held his intellectualism in contempt. So he stepped away. On December 8th, he resigned his positions in the party, and while he'd keep his Reichstag seat until the next round of elections in March 1933, he wasn't a factor there either. He did, though, publish an open letter directly to Hitler, and while it was being delivered to the Fuhrer in his hotel suite, Strasser was simultaneously breaking down its points to 35 party leaders close to him personally. The letter condemned Hitler's approach to seizing power and accused Hitler of not knowing what National Socialism even was anymore, saying that he treated it as merely a vehicle to his own personal aggrandizement. Strasser also denounced the prolonging of the ongoing constitutional crisis, as well as the SA's use of political violence. Goebbels commented that the letter dropped like a bombshell, and the upper echelons of the NSDAP went into crisis mode. Strasser was walking away, but would those close to him also exit the party and perhaps form a group of their own? Even a modest breakaway at that critical time could doom the entire movement to the political scrap heap. The culture of intrigue and conspiracy that was cultivated in the NSDAP now threatened to blow up in a big way. A number of the party leaders that Strasser had addressed rushed over to meet with Hitler to ask him to try and repair the breach. Hitler instead subjected them to a three-hour-long speech that rebutted Strasser's letter point by point, and once their senses were exhausted, called on them to re-swear their loyalty to him and threatened to commit suicide should they refuse. They did so, and two of them rushed to intercept Strasser and bring him back on Hitler's terms. They found Strasser finishing dinner in a restaurant, about to leave for a sojourn to Italy. He refused them, paid his check, and left for vacation. Hitler himself did not rest on his laurels. Two days later on the 10th, he embarked on a cross-country campaign, this time directed solely at the NSDAP faithful. He stopped in at party branches and delivered morale-boosting speeches to reaffirm their commitment to their Fuhrer. The tour, completed by December 20th, was a smashing success for the narrow purpose of shoring up support for Hitler within the Nazi party. Strasser would not be a factor any longer, and his following would not be leaving the party. Hitler's control was enhanced still more. But as you might imagine, this episode did not at all advance his position in the greater struggle for power. Sure, Schleicher had lost a co-conspirator to drive a wedge in the movement, but Hitler wasn't about to be handed the chancellorship. The thing was, though, Schleicher's own position wasn't so secure. The general chancellor had burned pretty much every bridge he ever had in securing his new office. And while he didn't appreciate it at the time, he was circled by enemies. He had earlier sent a letter wishing a happy birthday to his old mentor, Groner, who he had betrayed back in March. Groner took it as a sign that maybe Schleicher wanted to use him and whatever remained of his influence. 
Groner replied that Schleicher no longer had friends he could count on, and that Groner himself missed the slightly less conniving version of his protege. He warned Schleicher that, as Chancellor, he'd have to build meaningful relationships and not govern through underhanded tactics or with an iron hand. The reason being was that such tactics would render Schleicher himself redundant. If Hindenburg wanted a pure authoritarian, Hitler was the better option. Schleicher, as it so happened, would fail to build those relationships, and as the unending crisis rolled along, would fall victim to that exact line of thinking. Schleicher had no base of support to be dictator. Hitler did. And next week, we actually reach the endgame of this final crisis of Weimar Germany and cover the ascension of Adolf Hitler to the nation's chancellorship. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.